Welcome to Deeper Levels, a podcast about pathology, medicine, and science mostly. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome a special guest, Dr. Bryn Nelson. Dr. Nelson received his PhD in microbiology from the University of Washington in Seattle and a graduate certificate in science writing from the University of California at Santa Cruz. After working as a microbiologist for a time, he has he was a science writer since 2000. He started his career as a writer at Newsday and has since contributed to the New York Times, Nature, Mosaic, Discover, Scientific American, and MSNBC.com, also science news for students and other print and online publications. Dr. Nelson, um, Bryn, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, yeah. So can you tell us more about yourself, aside from the info I provided above, how you came to work where you do? Specifically, did you come up in a scientific family? How did you end up choosing microbiology? And what was your job like when you were doing that for a living? Sure. Um, so actually, I do have a very scientific family. My mom was a nurse for many years. Uh, my dad was actually a physics major uh, before switching careers and going into the ministry. Um, and he was a, a Lutheran minister until his retirement. But uh, they very much encouraged my uh, siblings and I to go uh, to college. Uh, my older sister is now an editor, and uh, my older brother received his um PhD in pharmacology. So it's actually kind of perfect that I first went the science route, but then veered into uh, to yeah. writing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good mix in that family, really right? bridging gaps right and left. Yeah, for real. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I started, uh, I, uh, <clears throat> I went to a, a Lutheran college in Minnesota, uh, Concordia College, a good Lutheran school, and then um, was accepted uh, to the University of Washington here in Seattle for graduate school. And I, I actually started in an interdisciplinary program. It was a, uh, a molecular and cellul cellular biology program. And that was great for me because I, I thought everything was interesting. I, I couldn't decide which uh, discipline to focus on. So uh, that program allowed me to rotate through uh, three different labs. I ended up picking a microbiology lab and... Um, so that was the best fit for me. I, I stayed there and, and received my, uh, my, my PhD. And let's see, I think you wanted to know about my project. Um, yeah, so, what did you do when you were a microbiologist? Because you, you worked in that field for a time before switching. So what were you up to? I, I was. Um, for, for, for most of the time, though, I was really, uh, it was my PhD for six years. And then mm -hmm. I stayed in the lab for, uh, for a postdoc. Um, but uh, essentially, I was doing uh, bacterial biochemistry. Uh, so my project entailed mutating a gene that uh, encodes the MOL-G protein. And the reason why that's important, it's a member of uh, uh, what's called the maltose transport system in E. coli. And it's really a model system. It brings maltose sugar into the cell and works with other proteins. But it's very closely related to proteins, including uh, the CFTR protein and cystic fibrosis, which is a, a chloride channel that moves. Uh, yeah, I recognize that one. I'm, yep. not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not up on my maltose transport, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Few, few people are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, 
but uh, the so the CFTR gene is one. Another one is a multi-drug resistance in cancer, huh. actually uh, pumping drugs out of the cell. So basically, the idea was that if we could figure out which parts of this protein were essential or non-essential, it might give us some clues about these other proteins uh, mm-hmm. that have a have a role in disease. So so that was my job. Basically, um, so I you know I uh, had a couple papers out of it, but uh, essentially for the entire or seven years that I was there, I that that's that's what I did. Yeah, well, very important work. So you're you're doing that. So what prompts you to switch to science writing? So it it was actually one one of it was sort of a one reason was a, a dawning realization that that this wasn't quite the career for me, and another part was was kind of serendipity, and uh, I think. Maybe like a lot of other people, I had a bit of imposter syndrome when I was in graduate school, thinking that maybe I, I didn't belong there. Um, and you know, I did reasonably well, but I I, I realized probably about two two thirds of the way through that I actually enjoyed um, writing about the science much more than than I did actually doing the science. Mm-hmm. Um, I was one of those oddballs that uh, that actually really enjoyed writing my dissertation. Uh, mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, okay. There, I mean, it, there are all kinds of people that I'm not judging, but that is interesting. I don't know. I don't know if I had to decide if I liked better the data collection or the writing. I think I probably would say writing myself. I, yeah. you know, what I love doing, and this is super weird. I like uh, writing textbook chapters. So you know, oh yeah, it's a similar like aggregating information, kind of condensing it down. I think it's because I like teaching as well. I like making complex right. ideas understandable. So you're not you're not that weird. You're you're right. among friends here. I'm sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. But I, but I, but but you actually you picked up on a point, and that's the idea of synthesizing information. And I think yeah. you know that's the skill that has translated to my science writing career because it really is a lot about critical thinking, deciding which sources of information to go with, how you synthesize all of that information and make it understandable right. uh, to the reader. Uh, so basically, my lab mate, you know, at the time, one of her best friends was going through this science writing program at the University of California at Santa Cruz. And I heard about it kind of by chance. And I was really stunned to hear that such a thing existed because I had no Mm -hmm. idea that this was a career. Uh, At the time, there weren't really a lot of uh, alternative career options available. And I remember when I started thinking of going this route and saying that I wanted to be a science writer, uh, a member of my uh, thesis committee was very concerned that I was throwing my career away. Mm. Um, so this was not, this really wasn't a thing. Fortunately, my, uh, <clears throat> the, 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 the PI of, of the lab was very, uh, she was uh, very supportive of me, which was, which was great. Um, but I really became obsessed with the idea of being a science writer and so I started writing um, science features for the college newspaper, the UW Daily, and uh, got some clips that way and applied and was fortunate enough to get into uh, this program. And so it just synced up so that uh, I was able to, to uh, continue into the program um, you know, soon after I received my PhD. I stayed in the lab for, for a while as a postdoc. And then uh, essentially moved down to California for a year, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's great. It's basically a journalism boot camp for scientists. 
Nice. <laughs> yeah, it's basically a one-year, very intensive program, uh, which was perfect for me because you know I had already spent uh, years in school, and so just one more year was was something that was doable. Mm-hmm. And um, at the very end of the program, there's a uh, requirement for a full uh, a full-time internship. And I had applied and received uh, an internship at Newsday uh, newspaper in New York. And so I ended up doing two internships there. And at the end of the second one, they offered me a full-time job. So awesome. that's that's how I <laughs> switched switch coasts, uh, switched careers. And I began in March of 2000 and was on the science desk there for, uh, for seven years. All right. So journalism has always been fascinating to me. I love the news, although I will admit I haven't been watching it as much around the election because my anxiety was kind of getting off the charts. And it still is with this whole transition nightmare we're recording this around Thanksgiving. And um, every time I look at the news, I'm like, okay, it's still awful, you know, like, so I get it. And and then plus, I mean, obviously, you're a scientific journalist right now, COVID is just right. a mess, it feels like deja vu. But then again, people don't seem to care that it's getting really, really bad right now. So I'm sort of as, as a person who's involved in medicine, I'm like, uh, completely at a loss for what to say, think, do, etc. But aside from all the just tomfoolery and awful stuff that's going on in our country. I would like to talk to you about what it's like to be a journalist and specifically a scientific journalist. And since I sort of admire this field, can you tell me what it's like to basically like what it's like to be a journalist and be you? I mean, is it like every day you're getting like pitches from people and you accept them or do you write the article and then send it to people and say, Hey, do you want to publish this? Or also like I picture people having Rolodexes, which I'm sure no one has anymore because (laughs) that's like a super old thing. But do you have like a file of of people you call like famous scientists on, on speed dial? Like how does that work? Well, it's funny that you should say a Rolodex. I actually had one when I was at Newsday and, and yeah. many of the other uh, the writers did as well. Um, that's changed a little bit. And uh, one of the nice things about being uh, disorganized and not purging my uh, my emails is that that has sort of become a, a bit of a Rolodex because I can do a search within uh, my, my Gmail and figure out, have I talked to this person before? And, uh, uh-huh. you know, has has you know when i when i was researching this topic who did i call last time and a lot of a lot of times what it works uh, how it works is that um you'll talk to a scientist and then she might recommend someone else who might recommend someone else you know so so you know people usually in these fields will know each other and um, they're usually pretty good and pretty honest about um, saying, Oh, here's someone else you should talk to who's independent, mm-hmm. who's independent of my work. Because I see what, what I want to do is get an independent, um, independent source uh, who can put, can put things in context. Mm-hmm. So, so in, in terms of, uh, of how it starts, um, it, it typically d- depends on the assignment. You know, is it going to be a, a fast turnaround daily assignment? Is it going to be a feature story? Sometimes I will pitch uh, the story to a publication. Sometimes uh, the editor will assign me uh, a story. Uh, sometimes it's kind of half and half. We both, you know, work on something where it's not quite the right focus, but then we 
of go back and forth and and decide you know how we want to approach it and so the the first the the first thing is really uh what what are the questions that i want to ask and who are the best people to ask these questions to and so some of the sources are really obvious if we're covering a study for example uh, then i'll clearly want to interview uh, uh some of the authors on the study uh, but i will comb through um, university websites press releases google twitter um, I'm on a lot of, of uh, press uh, mailing lists. Uh, so there are, are kind of compilations. There's one called Eureka Alert. There's one called Newswise. And that allows uh, different universities and sometimes companies to send out uh, press releases. So a lot of times you can do a search through those and find someone who's who's doing something similar to what you're writing about. So there's a lot of different tricks uh, to getting it, but basically, you know, the idea is who who's going to be the best person who's has the right relevance, who uh, <clears throat> you know is 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 reasonably well informed on this topic, who can who can uh, put this in an, an interesting context. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's, so that's, uh, that's basically it. And, and then in terms of a, a, a timeline, um, you know, it, that's something that um, is, is set by the editor. Um, you know, when I was doing COVID stories earlier this year for the daily beast, sometimes there would be a, you know, one day turnaround, uh, which is a little nerve wracking. Um, other times for a long feature, it might be a couple months. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's very, okay. yeah. Yeah. It just seems like, uh, like for someone who's always had a job, like I've, I've pretty much always had jobs where I like go to work and I have things. I mean, obviously I do, you know, research, so that's similar maybe to what you're doing, but mm -hmm. it seems nerve wracking and it would require an incredible amount of self-discipline to do this kind of job because you're kind of on a schedule, but it's not set and you don't have, you know, like clearly defined goals set by someone else. It's right. a mixture of yours and someone else's. So that's very interesting. So you write regularly for Cancer Cytopathology, which is sort of landmark cytopathology journal. Can you tell me how this relationship developed and what it's like to write for that publication and who comes up with the topics for that? Sure. So I've, I've actually written for uh, Cancer Cytopathology for 10 years now, and uh, it's, a, it's a great little publication. Um, I really enjoyed writing for them. And uh, this is an interesting, um, <clears throat> it's an interesting publication in, in that it's, it's published by the American Cancer Society, and there are contracts with publishing uh, companies uh, to, to do some of the, the, uh, the, the publishing work. And so my editor is actually uh, part of Wiley. But then as part of our editorial meetings, uh, the physician editor who I work with, Dr. David Kaminsky, represents the journal. Um, and then we have a representative of the American Cancer Society. And so we meet every month and mm -hmm. um, we, we basically come up with the, the list of story ideas that we want to cover. And what's really fun about it is it's great it's a great group of people you know i think we work really well together um but we also decided very early on that we wanted to make this an open access very broad range news site and it's and it's one news feature every month so each month we pick a different topic and so we have done everything from end of life decision making um, empathy, financial toxicity, systemic racism, 
medical marijuana, distance learning for under-resourced under locations, cancer care for transgender individuals, you know, some of the emerging science and cytopathology techniques. So we really have a, a very broad range, you know, anything that we think will be of interest to, uh, to the readers of the journal or other people who are coming in and reading it as well. So, um, so yeah, so every month we have this kind of group effort and we go through kind of the, the stories and how we want to arrange them. And so for now, Let's say in December, I can tell you coming up, we have one which is on the lessons learned in caring for cancer patients during a time of COVID. You know, what have we learned over the last almost year of that? Mm -hmm. You know, so some of the ones are obviously very topical. And, you know, at any given time, we probably have about six or seven stories in the can. So we can kind of rearrange them and add to them as, as need be. But then, yeah, once a month, they, they, they come out in conjunction with the journal. That's really great because I also appreciate that it's open access. So just to briefly, you, you touched on COVID, just to talk about 2020. How sure. has life changed for you in 2020? And yeah, so just talk to me about like, I, I assume at some point you were traveling to do some stories, you know, interviewing people in person. I assume you're not doing that now. So can you just walk me through what your job looks like, what sure. it looked like a year ago and what it looks like now? Yeah, sure. So yes, you're right. And much less travel. Although, interestingly, a lot more local travel, very local travel, but yeah, not going to uh, conferences, uh, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of Zoom calls, um, a lot of Zoom conferences, which are interesting. But actually, we're going to uh, write about that as well for, for cancer cytopathology, because you know that's the new thing is, is Zoom conferences, right? So how does that mm-hmm. work? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's a really <clears throat> interesting thing that everyone's kind of feeling their way around. Yeah, so it's it's been it's been strange, but for COVID-19, it was actually really interesting. You know, the, the very first confirmed case was was here in Washington back in January. Mm-hmm. And so I actually started writing about COVID very early on for the Daily Beast. And so that at this point, you know, honestly feels about five years ago. I know, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I started writing about the emerging uh, pandemic for them, you know, back when we weren't sure whether or not this was going to be a pandemic or not. Mm-hmm. There was still mm-hmm. the thought that we might be able to to control it then. Ha, 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 ha. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> it gently throws up in trash can, yes. continues podcast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, God hard to believe that was ever true. Okay. Right. Yes. But yeah. But, but yeah, so that was, so that was really interesting because, you know, that, that kind of, you know, harkened back to my days at, uh, at Newsday and, you know, mm-hmm. getting, getting back into, you know, what would be the, the closest to kind of like a daily news cycle. Um, so I did uh, some writing for them um, and, and, and did a number of different uh, takes on that kind of what we had learned or, or not learned about uh, pandemic uh, preparedness and environmental surveillance how it was affecting the homeless community, you know, various stories. And then I also started writing for the British Medical Journal, the BMJ, also about COVID until June when I sort of switched careers and I have started writing a, a book. And so we can maybe talk about that later, but yeah. I had to kind of take a step back from, from, from some of that. It was a little overwhelming kind of both yeah. you know physically and also sort of emotionally and I just needed to kind of take a little bit of a breather and, and kind of work on some other you know other uh, work priorities 
Mm-hmm. I feel you. I've been, like I said, not watching the news as much. And it's been interesting to me, the things that I'm willing to do instead of watching the news. Oh, yeah. And I, I just one other thing. And I think one of the other things, though, that kind of helped was this kind of realization that everyone was in the same situation that I was mm-hmm. in, you know, kind mm-hmm. of trying to feel their way forward. You know, mm-hmm. so so even for sources, I mean, everyone was very helpful. Everyone was juggling, you know, home and work life. Uh, a lot of people were just flat out overwhelmed. So it wasn't that they didn't want to talk. I just had to be, you know, you just had to have a little bit more patience and, uh, you know, put out more more feelers, uh, you know. And, and that was especially true, you know, when I was writing for the Daily Beast, you know, where I, I had to find an epidemiologist, you know, or or five. But you would you would tend to, to put out, you know, m- m- considerably more calls uh, because, you know, for, for various reasons, people just were not available. So, yeah. you know, if I wanted to be assured of, of having at least, you know, one or two people uh, get back to me, I might put out seven or eight or nine calls, um, yeah. you know, to try and get a hold of them. Yeah. Because those people are probably, I don't know, the last time I heard Fauci be interviewed, he said he was sleeping four hours a night, right. which, which worries me. He needs to take care of himself. But <laughs> yeah, I, I feel you. Yeah, that's a lot of work. So you wrote a piece, the one that actually prompted me to contact you called mm-hmm. Cervical and Anal Cancer Prevention in Jails and Prisons a missed opportunity. Mm-hmm. I'd like to talk about this piece in a few separate questions. First, sure. what made you want to focus on this area? Sure. Well, so we had done a feature a number of years ago around uh, vaccine hesitancy, especially around uh, vaccinating boys for HPV. Mm-hmm. And that just, it, it kind of stuck with me as as we learned more about the effectiveness of, of the vaccine. And I think it was uh, maybe a news article about kind of the surge in anal cancer that seemed pretty alarming. And this was a, a discussion with Dr. Kaminsky and, you know, others in our our, our monthly group about kind of these concern, concerning reports. And <clears throat> I think he was the one that said, you know, this is a real problem in, in jails and prisons. And I think we really need to explore this. And, you know, and, and, and it turned out he was, you know, absolutely right. And I think what's, I mean, there are, there are a number of different disturbing things about this, but, but the, we we had we had kind of talked about this and sort of germinated it over a couple of months, and we realized that you know here is this very effective prevention technique the the, the HPV vaccinations that a lot of people weren't getting, and mm-hmm. and then they weren't even getting many of them you know the next level which would be you know pap tests you know, yeah. so. So there were multiple steps along the way where this population was being failed, and it could have you know very severe uh, repercussions down the line. And and so we really wanted to explore what, why aren't these uh, prevention why why is it prevention not being done for this for this population? So this was uh, the story that we did for the April 2020 issue. Yeah, and I think COVID has brought into stark contrast or perhaps just brought to the forefront of people's minds 
the healthcare disparities that have existed in America for a long time, right? I don't think a lot of people were paying attention to it quite as right. much as we are now. Yeah, absolutely. But I, yeah, but what I see your article doing, and as someone, you know, as I mean, most people who are listening to this know that I'm a GYN pathologist, but I'm also a cytopathologist, so it's a sort of a perfect overlap of, I, I probably spend more time thinking about HPV than most people, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I'm literally hunting for it every day under the microscope. So mm-hmm. um, I see your article as very timely because it also highlights, it highlights a bunch of things, right? Like vaccine hesitancy, people mm-hmm. not trusting science, but also highlighting healthcare disparities. And those who are incarcerated, I think are, and not in a patronizing way, but they're sort of the poster children for this, right? I mean, mm-hmm. they're not only feeling the side effects of HPV and vaccination, but also COVID right now. So mm-hmm. um Talk to me a little bit about what you found when you were looking into this about, because you were talking about the PAP test about Mm -hmm. HPV and cervical cancer screening in this population, Mm because I know there are several problems that this population has. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, there really are are, are sort of multiple levels here, and they all kind of build and amplify, you know, off of each other. And and so one of them is just a simple awareness, a lack of awareness, and and some of it is public awareness, but even among the, the jails and prisons that are, that have a mandate to to care for the residents. Right. You know, they're they're supposed to be guaranteed uh, to, to to get help, to receive healthcare, and so I think the the public awareness is is reasonably reasonably good um, about the link between HPV and cervical cancer. I mean, obviously it could be better, um, but. What there's very little awareness about is the link between HPV and penile cancer, anal cancer, head and neck cancer. Mm-hmm. You know, so these are other things that just are not even on the radar. Mm-hmm. So secondly, <clears throat> at least in North America, very few jails or prisons prisons provide HPV vaccinations to women, let alone men, Mm. even though we have this very effective vaccine that's available. And now the CDC has recommended these, the catch-up vaccinations through the age of 45. Mm -hmm. So that's another disparity that can be, you know, perpetuated and and amplified. And one of the the people that I talked to uh, for this story was Dr. Mega. Ramaswamy. She is an associate professor of population health at the uh, University of Kansas Medical Center in Kansas City. And she and her colleagues have really worked a lot on this topic. And one of the articles that she pointed me to was incredibly eye-opening to me. And they had looked at, you know, they, 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 study primarily uh, jails. And they were looking in for this particular study at jails in uh, Kansas City. Mm-hmm. And they and they found that only thirty five percent of age eligible women had been vaccinated for HPV, only eight percent of age eligible men. And if you look at by comparison, you have about in the United States, I think about fifty four percent of girls were fully vaccinated in, in two thousand eighteen, uh, about forty eight percent of boys. So right off the bat, that's a big disparity among these individuals, you know, that are not receiving the the HPV vaccine. And then you go and look and say, okay, well, what about uh, pap tests? And they, so the same group surveyed jail administrators in Iowa, Nebraska, Missouri, and Kansas, and only 4% of jails were providing pap testing in that sample. So that's shocking. Mm-hmm, <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. And 
you know, and, and you can argue that, you know, jails where there's more of a, you know, the more of short-term facilities as opposed to, you know, prisons, which tend, which are the longer-term facilities, you know, that the, the, the population there is, is a little bit more transient, you know, people don't stay there as long. But I think that that should be even more of a focus because that's mm-hmm. your opportunity, right? To, right? to really make a difference. And so there's less, tends to be less focus on preventive care and more on, on treating symptomatic patients. Many of these patients are expected to make an out-of-pocket co-payment to see a doctor. So you already have barriers there. Um, the availability of a doctor or a test can be a, uh, a barrier. A lot of times, as this study suggests, it's not even offered. Right. Um, you know, and on top of that, you have you know housing insecurity. You have intense distrust of doctors due to past experiences, for example. So you have this quick you know piling up uh, for for uh, for obstacles you know, that can yeah. really, that can really be, that can really be an issue. So that's, so that's on the side for, for, for pap testing uh, for, for women. The rate is typically higher in, in prisons, but there's another statistic that's also quite illuminating. And that suggests that uh, women with a criminal justice history are roughly four to five times as likely to have a cervical cancer diagnosis as women, as other women. And uh, so clearly there's a, there's a lot of work that we have to do. Yeah, definitely. Deep breaths. That's so infuriating. I mean, yeah. I, I just think if a country, if a government is going to set up a system where they take away someone's liberty, and a lot of times, because you're talking about the difference between jail and prison, and as I understand mm-hmm. it, jail is sort of like where you wait mm-hmm. to be put on trial or not trial, because I know most cases in this country don't go to trial. It's like you plead out or whatever. Prison is where you go when you're sentenced, right? And jail is where you go while you're waiting. Well, but, yeah, I mean, jail, yeah. jail, jails can also be for shorter term um, sentences oh, okay. as well. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, 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 but generally speaking, right. Uh, you right. know, prisons would be a longer term, uh, longer term confinement. Yes. Right. So mm-hmm. it, to me, like you're saying, jail should be a place where we're trying to capture mm-hmm. these folks and do mm-hmm. preventative care. Also, a lot of those people, if you buy into this, you know, general paradigm of jails where you go while you're waiting to be convicted in prison, these people haven't even gotten their day in court yet, right? You're taking right. away their liberty, right, 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 and confining them, right. <laughs> and then saying, you know, we really just don't have time to make sure that you get a pat test. It's just like, huh, like, <laughs> huh? Right. Yeah. No. It's 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 yeah. It's important to note that a lot of people who are in jails haven't been convicted, right? You know, they 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 haven't had their day in court yet, and 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 for many of them, it's because they were either denied bail or they can't afford bail. You know, so right. that's so that's yeah, so that's yet another layer on top of that. You that know, this it, makes yeah, yeah, yeah. to me it makes yeah. it even worse. But yeah. it's hard and, to, yeah. and we haven't even talked about the the anal cancer side of it, which is right. almost completely lacking. You know, both for sure. men and women, mm-hmm. even though you know the rates are skyrocketing. You know, so I talked with you know folks and and tried to search the literature for anything um, that's been that's been written about it, and you know we have very few. Uh, uh, national evidence-based guidelines for anal pap tests. I know. Yeah. Let alone uh, for for anyone who are in a jail or prison setting. So that's yeah. another, just a huge, huge uh, a gap where we have absolutely 
you know, uh, no preventive care uh, for a population that could very much benefit from it. And so, right. <clears throat> so the really, so part of this was, was creating awareness, but also, uh, you know, there is some research that's being conducted on this now, you know, people are, you know, at least in the research community, uh, you know, very much in agreement that this is a huge problem that needs to be addressed. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, how do we get to that point, uh, you know, with, with better public health education through research, through community partnerships, for example, with, with right. public, with public health entities to, yeah. to try and, uh, and prevent some of these cancers because we know they're preventable. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, the best part. And COVID is occupying so much of people's minds right now. Right, it's hard to right. imagine there will be a time when we have time to think about this again, but I think as long you know, we just keep talking about it so that when we yeah. do have a moment to breathe. So speaking of COVID, the prison and jail system is making headlines recently. Um, a lot of times if you look on a map and you see that there um, are places where the the outbreak rate is much higher than you would think. You quickly find mm-hmm. out that they have a prisoner jail and that mm-hmm. that is why. Um, I find this infuriating for the reasons I've already talked about. So can you talk about about the work about COVID-19 in prisons? I know you've written about this. Like, mm-hmm. how is that changing in the moment? Are you still working on that? I know mm-hmm. you said you're working on your book now. Did you have to pull away from this as well? well? So I was able to do some reporting on this. This was actually for the August issue of Cancer Cytopathology, where we looked, where we took a, a look at the time of the COVID situation in jails and prisons. Although um, I just looked again and, and of course the, the situation is much, much worse even mm-hmm. than it was then, which, right. is, which is just stunning to me. And what was interesting at the time, and there are a lot of uh, very good organizations that are looking at this. The Marshall Project is one that's done some very good reporting on this. There's another project called the UCLA Law COVID-19 Behind Bars Data Project. There are okay. folks that at Harvard University Kennedy School that have been looking at this. But one of the things, just in terms of the, the, the numbers, and I don't want to focus just on you know statistics, but I think it helps give people a sense of of the magnitude of the problem. And at that time, this was June 10th, when when I looked the last time for my reporting, there were just under uh, 50,000 cases in the US in jails and prisons. When I just looked again, that has ballooned to more than 210,000 cases. So we knew it was a problem, a big problem in June, it is now more than quadrupled since then. So that, to me, is 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 just absolutely astonishing and so disturbing. You know, we saw the red blinking lights, you know, mm-hmm. in in mm-hmm. June, and we saw you know the these these cases and deaths, and uh, since then it's just exploded. So I think you know that's that's something that, like you said, COVID has really laid bare the the disparities, the lack of preparedness, the extreme vulnerability. Not just because of of you know we know that the the the, the prison population is aging in the U.S. That means mm-hmm. that they um, can have more cor- comorbidities that mm-hmm. make them more susceptible to worse outcomes. But we know the actual design of jails and prisons doesn't work well when you're trying to quarantine people or isolate them or keeping right. sick or even asymptomatic. You know, In fact, who test yeah, the opposite is possibly true, right? If right. you were going to design a place or a system which was optimally designed to spread a respiratory virus, right. you would design a prison right, or a jail yeah. because they're closely packed and there's not a lot of 
you know, blockage of air movement, I wouldn't think in between a lot of spaces. So right. Ugh. They're they're typically overcrowded. And I think one yeah. of the one of the numbers that that that, that came to light is that uh, in, in one particular jail, the number of cases in that or in a in a prison was actually actually exceeded the on paper capacity for the prison. You know, so they had so many people in oh. that that the number of cases that they had it like outed them that they had too many people in the prison it, they, it, they got it, found it, out basically yeah, yeah. <laughs> but i mean but that's but but it's not even yeah. you know it's not even one or two it's it's many and and so one of the strategies um actually has been decarceration so you know low level um offenders for example some you know others who may be eligible for for parole so this this strategy to try and ease overcrowding because mm-hmm. it, you know it turns out that as you said you know yeah. crowding is a very good way to 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 to, to pass on covid so anyway so it's just another example of 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 this this disparity and this sort of turning a blind eye to the health outcomes of of people's in, people in jails and prisons and and this kind of lack of understanding that we're all tied together you know you have you have yeah. people who work in these facilities they go back to their communities as well and so you know we've heard story after story after about how some of these facilities can contribute to sizable outbreaks in communities right. Right. and yeah. and so you know we really have to to get this mindset that you know what happens to the more vulnerable among us may eventually come back and and bite all of us yeah, it's it's the sort of pandemic equivalent of a rising tide lifts all boats. I don't know mm-hmm. why people can't get that through their head that it's it's not just about you. You know, right. you might be young and healthy, but or it, and it's not just because you feel like someone who's incarcerated or in a prisoner jail more or less doesn't deserve the same amount of preventative sort of you know safety measures that you do. But right. you can't you can't run this. It's not. It just that to me that's one of the most frustrating parts of this is to watch people pretend like it's not happening. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's yeah. not as, it's not a zero sum gain. It's not, yeah. you know, when, when we make one community safer, we're yeah. all benefiting from that. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And it's, you know, like I said, an exercise in frustration. So, yeah. so we can talk about something maybe slightly happier, although <laughs> maybe I'll figure out that this isn't, but I know you're working on a book. You and I briefly talked about it. So right. before you start talking about your book in particular, sure. I find it very interesting. So it's sort of like the idea of you just deciding you're going to be a journalist. Mm-hmm. Magnificent. I think a lot of people wouldn't feel as comfortable sort of upward. It's interesting that you said your impetus for becoming a science journalist was that you felt like an imposter. Whereas if I even thought for two seconds about becoming a journalist, I would feel like an even bigger imposter if that's <laughs> as possible. So I find it like you you have a great personality for this because um, it involves a lot of sort of um, self sufficiency. So when right. you decide you want to write a book, how does that work? Does someone come to you and say like, Bryn, I want you to write a book. I want it to do by this date. This is how much money I'll give you. Or one day where you're like, I can't do this day to day writing about COVID anymore. I'm going to write a book. I'll write the first 10 chapters. And then I'll go to this person I know and say, Hey, I've got this book. Will you pay me to write the rest of it? How does that work? <laughs> I wish, I wish it were so easy, right? No, it's, it actually, you know, writing a book is a long, long process. And, and I will say, you know, being sort of, knee deep in it, it really has to be something that you're passionate about and committed to because it's you're you're in it for the long haul. 
And, uh-huh. you know, this is a book that I had wanted to write for probably the last five years or so. And it took a long time to 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 kind of flesh out the ideas in in the book to find an agent who who was willing to write me back <laughs> and say that that she would represent me and and fortunately I uh, found a great agent and then try and work on the book together at least on the kind of the outline and the the main arguments and then shop it around to to a publisher and and it's the publisher if the publisher says yes that then you negotiate you know an advance and the mm-hmm. to- and the timeline and the scope of the book so so it's all it's 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 it it all takes much longer than you think it should <laughs> and yeah. and and it's a lot more work than you know than i i knew it was going to be a, a lot of work going into it um but but yeah, but I think it you know I think in the end it's 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 worth it because you know it's another form of of science journalism. It's a challenge, mm-hmm. and I think going you know going back to to you know my my days of self doubt and, and feeling like an imposter. I think you know it was more a feeling of I was interested in everything, and so it was difficult for me to imagine kind of focusing on a very very narrow slice of science for that long. I think I that I think I've you know since discovered that I can do the research I can be focused but uh-huh. since I have uh, uh this sort of broad interest in a in a in a lot of different aspects of science you know the idea was how do I how do I marry that together into into a book Right, um, does not get up every day to go play with ribosomes. Or right, something. yeah. You want, you want to have a little bit yeah. more of a scope than that. Okay, right. so can I ask one more question about, so you said you had to find an agent. Sure. When you go to find an agent, I assume that that was made somewhat easier by the fact that you were already a journalist and so you maybe had some contacts. But when you contact an agent, do you have to show them things you've already written? Did you show yes. this person your articles and say, look, I can write, I can meet a deadline, I know how to string together a sentence, et cetera? Yes. Well, so, so, so two answers. And and first you would think that it would be easier for me since I had contacts, but actually it was incredibly difficult because I knew Mm -hmm. nothing about book publishing at the time. And so I literally went to a site with a friend of mine. We were sort of uh, uh, book buddies. We were both in the kind of the similar situation and we- (laughs) Commiserating people. (laughs) Yeah, commiserating, right. And we basically went and found a list of agents that- that are atta- have been attached to science books in the past and made Excel spreadsheets and basically went one by one and contacted them. So it was very, <laughs> very basic. And, and yes, at the time, then you send uh, first kind of an introduction and, and they typically don't want it to be very long, you know, a page or two pages that introduces yourself, why you should write the book, why it should be you writing the book, you know, what your big idea is and, mm-hmm. you know, and kind of how, how you plan to, to, to work it all together. So, yeah, okay. so, that, okay. so that's, that's how I found my agent, Anna. And so the book is, it's called Treasure and Wasteland. And it is, it is. It's great because I know what it's actually about. That's yes, kind of a pack. Yes, I know. And so, and yeah, so the big, the, the big reveal is it's the, the science and the meaning of human poop. Yes. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of that book I read when I was in medical school. Oh gosh, about the dead bodies. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, uh, there's a body farm is, is. No, no. The one uh, stiff. 
Oh yes, uh huh. Mary Roach. Yeah. yeah, it's like she wrote she wrote a book about something where you're like, really? I could read a whole book about this. I yeah. I picked it up. I could not put it down. So yeah. I think you're no. on, you're on a good track here. Yeah, yeah. no, yeah. Mary Roach. Yeah, she's a fantastic author. And uh, yeah, it was it was actually a little bit of the inspiration uh, for for my thinking about this. Um, and uh, so this is uh, so this is a book. It's it's due to be published in uh, 2022 by Grand Central Publishing, and 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 just like a elevator pitch is is again the idea that we're all connected we're all connected to nature except we as humans have sort of divorced ourselves from nature and my argument is that uh poop our waste is one of the 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 most squandered natural resources on the planet and so we have this material that actually contains a lot of really really valuable good stuff energy, water, a whole host of nutrients. So the argument is that if we're open-minded, if we can kind of overcome our sense of disgust, we already have the raw material and the technology and the know-how to reconnect ourselves back to the rest of the planet and help solve some of our biggest problems. So renewable biogas from the breakdown Mm -hmm. of waste, returning nutrients and soil amendments through biosolids. We can recycle water, we can provide better sanitation. There are these reinvented toilets where, you know, not only do you have better sanitation, but you can also get electricity from them or biochar that will help provide better nutrients for the soil or even be used for cooking. Uh, oh wow, that's a that's a stretch there. Right? I got a little got a little uneasy. I'm trying to be open minded. <laughs> I mean, it's. It, it, I mean, you think of think of it as it's it's, it's, it's basically you're you're making charcoal. Uh, oh wow! Yeah, Gosh. yeah. And I I just feel like the jokes would be. Oh, there, there's you know, yeah. There, you can't you can't you can't stop the puns. <laughs> they just keep I mean, coming. You, you were knee deep in this book earlier. I'm just saying. Exactly. But I even need to grow up. Yeah. <laughs> but even no 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 that's perfect. I think I think you can't avoid you can't avoid the puns. And that's a yeah. way to and that's a way to you know that's a way to draw people in, right? It's funny. I mean, it is. And yeah. so you know that that can that can help disarm people and 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 draw them into this. But I think just to go back one second to COVID, because of course, all things right now are are COVID related. Wastewater epidemiology is a huge thing. We're actually Mm -hmm. testing sewers and wastewater Mm -hmm. for signs of COVID. So that provides an extremely valuable service in terms of an early warning where COVID, not just COVID, but other viruses, this goes back to polio. This was used for decades for polio to Mm -hmm. detect the, the presence of it. And then one other example is we know that uh, fecal transplants, you know, again, kind of a, a messy thing, but they are, are wildly effective in curing people who have really horrible bacterial uh, uh, infections. So, so there's a there's a whole there's a whole host of this. So I think it's basically the idea of, of maybe arguing that we need to change our mindset a little bit about how we view poop and and maybe embrace it. Not yeah, li- not, you can be not, like not literally, poop. but yeah. You, well, yeah, you can be poop's PR person. There we go. Now on in 2022 <laughs> your plan is to be poops PR person right. so you went to you got a phd in order to do that but no exactly. i think it's it's interesting to to tie together your background in microbiology yep. your journalism this is sort of all coming together and i certainly think that the interest in you know sort of green energy it's all mm-hmm. it's all coming to a fruition and one would hope with more 
open-minded leadership in this country, perhaps it'll come at a good time, right? If it's coming out 2022. So yeah, I think so. Absolutely. We have the ability. I think it's just, we need to have the, you know, the political will to to help solve some of our problems. Yeah. Amen. So to close out the show, I like to ask folks what they're doing when they're not working and when they're not worried about COVID. So it's 2022, you're in the Pacific Northwest, which is a beautiful area Mm -hmm. of the country. But obviously, we're all pretty locked down right now, not mm-hmm. officially, but I, I assume you're not like meeting up with 20 friends and having right. parties. So no. what do you do for fun right now, if such a thing is possible? Well, one of the things that's been just amazing for me, both physically and mentally, is gardening. And we had a two big vegetable gardens for the first time ever in the yard, one in the front yard, one in the back. And that was great. It was humbling because, you know, I quickly learned what I was doing wrong. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I, always, I always figure that it's going to take it like, when I finally have time to do that, it's going to take a couple of years to really be someone who's like right. providing for myself. So that's interesting to hear. Yeah. 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 But it <laughs> yeah. was a, but it was a great, it was a great experiment and uh, there were some wonderful successes. So, uh-huh. you know, lettuces, peas, Ooh. radishes, you know, even squash and peppers. Uh, and oh. it, <clears throat> tomatoes. Uh, tomatoes are kind of funny in Seattle because most parts of the country, you can grow them extremely well. In Seattle, it's always a struggle. But for this year, we found the right sunny spot for them and we had oh. glorious tomatoes. So that was kind of the small small triumph that we had here. Yeah. I love tomatoes. Yeah. And peppers can be kind of hard to grow as well. Yeah. So, But the squash are, are interesting because they can get out of control pretty quickly, right? They kind of can thrive if you're not careful. They'll take off. Oh yeah, yeah. So, no, so uh, that, that's been great. That's been great. That and yeah. uh, you know, flower gardening, and so just a lot of yard work. It's been you know very satisfying yeah. right now. Yeah, that is satisfying. I agree. Well, I really appreciate you coming on to talk to me. I know you're hard at work on your book, and I wish you the best. And maybe when you're finished with it, you can come back and we can have like a a podcast party for you and uh, virtual. Well, at this point, maybe we'll actually be able to, you can, you'll be having in-person book signings, but we can hope for the best, right? Yes, absolutely. Well, well, yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. It's, it's really been a pleasure. Yeah, it was great. Thanks for, thanks for coming on. I'll talk soon. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Brent. Bye.